I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Today's guest is Ari Shulman. He is the editor of The New Atlantis, as well as editor of TheNewAtlantis.com and of the New Atlantis Books series. His writing has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Hedgehog Review, Commentary, First Things, and Slate. He has degrees in computer science and English from the University of Texas at Austin. Ari, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So much uh, intellectual energy and time has been spent analyzing and discussing the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and with good reason, I think. We've watched the tragedy unfold over the last two years, a tragedy that most importantly has taken the lives of millions of people across the globe. But it's also a tragedy, I think, of United States government, a tragedy of United States public health apparatus, and a tragedy of our medical and scientific establishment. I don't want to dismiss the miraculous nature and rapid development of vaccines and therapeutics, and we can be thankful for those and, and still wince and cringe at the way we've mishandled pandemic policy. The examples of the mis these missteps are numerous and well-known, from lies about the utility of masks at the beginning of the pandemic to the initial minimization of the disease to the atrophied system that failed to roll out tests quickly enough. You've written and published quite a lot about COVID-19 in the New Atlantis over the last couple of years. Clearly, you follow this very closely. What do you think are the biggest mistakes or missteps we've made here in the United States during the um, pandemic? Uh, wow, that's uh, <laughs> there's so many different places to start. Uh, but I, I think the most encompassing way to think about this is that we've never figured out how to get into a problem-solving and solutions-oriented mentality, or it's taken us far longer than it should have to do that. And I think that the way that we think and talk about science has wound up in some ways being more of a hindrance to getting to that point. Uh, than it has been an aid. Uh, to borrow a little from Walt Whitman, science contains multitudes. There's lots of different ways that we can think about and engage with science, but our culture has set settled on a more monolithic view where science is something like uh, something equivalent to uh, Moses coming down from the mountain to deliver these uh, oracular pronouncements. And yes, there's a certain element in which science is a way that we can do that to learn about the natural world, but it has all of these other different ways of functioning as well. And what we've needed is something that's much more like, uh, you know, a crack team of engineers in a back room figuring out how to get the Apollo 13 astronauts back from outer space in a couple of days time. That's the mentality that we needed early in the pandemic. We've needed it for the last two years. And it's been there in little bits and pieces, but by and large, the, uh, the, the mindset of uh, worrying about whether people are doing something without evidence has predominated more, and I think it's hindered the response. Yeah, and, and you wrote about this um, in 2016, and it seems like our conception or misconception about science and scientific authority uh, has, as you said, been the real hindrance here. So in, in an essay for the Hedgehog Review, you wrote, our conversations about science are dominated on one side by those who reflexively distrust broad swaths of it as corrupted by groupthink, corporatism, or global governance conspiracy, and on the other by those keen to distance themselves as far as possible from the first group to label any deviation from scientists' opinions as paranoia, denialism, anti-science. COVID-19 really crystallized these two sides and amplified the visible chasm between them. And unfortunately, as you wrote then, those these attitudes of defiance and deference might seem at odds. They are each dysfunctional stances towards scientific authority, mutually reinforcing and commonly opposed to the empowering independence science is supposed to sustain. What did you mean by this? And maybe you can give us some specific examples about how this manifested itself today. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to think about two groups, right? You have a kind of... Um a mainstream way of thinking about science. It's the, the kind of thing that you hear from Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. Uh, it's the way that John Kerry talked about science when he was running for president in 2004, and then Barack Obama did in 2008, um, where there's a kind of side of light and dark, and there's a just a straightforward pronouncement that science gives us uh, about what is the truth of anything and what we're supposed to do in any situation. Um, and then you have a side that is purported by that first group to be anti-science, um, you know, especially anti-vaxxers. Uh, in the 1990s, this manifested in fights over evolution. Um, 
And I think that they are both actually gripped by a common narrative, by this oracular view of science that I alluded to before. Um, there are different ways that this manifests. You hear a lot about the Galileo mythology, for example. And what's surprising is that you hear both sides of this equation adopting a similar sort of mythology, right? Where they are the ones who are the brave truth tellers against an orthodoxy, right? Maybe the orthodoxy, uh, two years ago at the beginning of COVID, the orthodoxy was supposed to be um, Donald Trump's stranglehold on American politics, right? And you had the brave truth tellers who were speaking out about the need for masking or lockdowns. Um, but the equation goes the other way. You have uh, people on the anti-mask and anti-lockdown side of the equation also declaring uh, that the science is on their side on, on this. And you basically have these two views that both say uh, that they're they're rivaling over who gets to own the same view of scientific expertise as providing a kind of straightforward rubber stamp for uh, for policy and politics. And there are just very, very few applications in the political realm where science gives us such straightforward answers. And especially during the COVID pandemic, this has been one of the clearest cases where uh, science has really been lacking in the kinds of straightforward answers that we might hope for to really resolve these questions in such a, such a simple way. It's incredible I, to watch some of these debates unfold on Twitter too about, for instance, young young people and vaccines. Um, do you give one dose? Do you give two doses? Do you give three doses? Um, and if you if you follow a lot of the epidemiologists or or vaccinologists, you'll find that you have many different opinions about this. So. Paul Offit, I think, was recently kind of skewered by some folks on Twitter for saying that um, I think it was young people don't necessarily need a booster. It, it's almost as if the ground is shifting beneath us when we're trying to say, well, science believes this or science says this. Or the truth is this, because the truth is that um, there's a lot of debate about these issues, particularly during uh, a pandemic. Right. I mean, one way to think about this is that when we are invoking science says, or the studies say this, or there's no evidence for that, we are actually, we're really fighting over is standards of adequate information, standards of sufficient evidence, and also standards of significance and priority. Um, things that are, thing, these are, these are things where the boundary between whether we're uh, fighting over facts and whether we're fighting over values are actually kind of fuzzy because what we're really fighting over is how much facts matter and what level of facts we need in order to be able to make a decision and to act. And this view, this kind of science says, science shaming mindset, it actually makes it harder for us to be able to have those debates and resolve those debates well. Uh, let me offer an example here. So uh, early on during the pandemic, we heard uh, from the public health establishment, you know, think Anthony Fauci and um, all of the people who celebrate him and follow what he says. We heard there's no evidence that masks work and uh, a lot of kind of implications that people who were wanting to wear masks were maybe paranoid. This was a holdover from earlier pandemics. We had the exact same debate during Ebola at a smaller scale. And there were masking at that point was was much more associated with the right. It was something that people who were paranoid about viruses and contagion and maybe especially about foreign contagions would do. So it became kind of coded as a basically a MAGA thing. Can I um, um, can I add a ahead. story, a, a please anec anecdote uh, to that? So in March 2020, um, I will try and keep this as vague as possible. But there is a physician in the emergency room who had a mask on. And one of the very senior folks um, in this particular hospital who who not should know better but does know better said you need to take that off because it's bad optics oh boy um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my the, how the tune has changed but sorry go, go ahead I interrupted you right I mean there were there are tons of examples of this uh, this exact debate goes back actually decades before covid there was this debate during Ebola it happened during the SARS outbreak in 2003. Um, you can find examples of doctors and medical journals during the Ebola outbreak chastising colleagues who are wearing hazmat suits while treating Ebola patients for the exact same reason. It's bad optics. It projects stigma, all of this kind of stuff. And uh, there are a lot of peculiarities about this. Uh, one is that the same dynamic happened early on, let's say up through April or so of 2020. Another is that the 
the political coding on this completely and entirely flipped around in the span of a couple of weeks. All of a sudden, masking became uh, basically lefty Fauci coded and anti-masking became Trump and MAGA coded. Nobody really talks about the weirdness of that flip happening because it's embarrassing for everybody involved because it suggests that there's there's something more than just positions on science going on here. But in terms of the mainstream narrative, what we heard at first is there's no evidence that masking works. And then we heard actually the science on this has shifted. As happens, science evolves. And now there's all of this evidence that masking works. Well, I don't think that's really the case. There really hasn't been much new uh, research on masking during COVID, which is itself a problem. There should have been a great deal more. Um, Really what happened was that the prudential judgment on this changed. Uh, There's a lot of intuitive, there's there's just good intuitive reason to think that N95 masks would be effective uh, against COVID. And especially early on, um, there was good intuitive reason to think and circumstantial reason to think that COVID might be transmissible through the air and therefore that you would want to take these airborne precautions. Um, and so you really had a choice of whether to adopt um, the the sort of fact-checking mindset on this that says we need to wait until there is extremely high-quality evidence to act and otherwise you're acting against fact, or to take a problem-solving and solution-oriented mindset and say we should just go ahead and take actions that seem like they're likely to work, that there's good reason to work, that they're not super high-cost, let's go ahead and do those. Um And once you're taking a solutions-oriented mindset, I think that the case for masking early on was quite strong. Now, if you're in that mindset, there's a couple of other things that you would want to do. One is uh, you would want to make it very easy for people to be able to mask, give them good information about what's going to work well. Uh, And the other is you would want to recognize that the, the research on this still was pretty lacking and make it an important political priority to actually do better research on this. And the court and the last two years, to my knowledge, I think there's only been one uh, quality randomized controlled trial uh, that studied the effectiveness of broad community masking against COVID, and it returned what we expected, which is you know evidence that it works reasonably effectively. It's not a knockout punch by any means, uh, but it's remarkable that there hasn't been more of that kind of research, and all the, also that we're talking about this as if it has the same kind of epistemic status as like uh, Newton's laws of gravity or something like that. Uh, the other example, I, I think, is um, the recent pronouncement by the CDC that, um, at least for physicians, that five days after you know getting COVID, that you could go back to work and be masked. Which is, uh, like, if you think about it from a just infectious disease perspective, it doesn't really make sense because people can be infectious after those five days, and we know that people often are infectious after those five days. It was a policy decision that was almost presented scientifically, or at least interpreted scientifically. And um, people were really upset with the CDC. But then if you take a step back and you think, okay, well, why, why was this policy put in place? Well, our medical system is under um, great amount of stress. I can tell you here in, in Philadelphia, a lot of physicians, a lot of residents are out with COVID. And if you extended that time window to 10 days, um, or if you didn't shorten the time window, you wouldn't have people to care for patients. So it was a policy that had to sort of cut corners in order to make things doable for everyone else and for patients. You know, that's not like the science. That is a practical decision that tries to take into account science as well as our I don't know, public health status. Right. And the reality is virtually every decision and every action that's been performed by anybody during COVID is of that nature. It's bound, it has to be grounded by uh, interpretation uh, of not entirely conclusive evidence. And it has to take into account a bunch of other considerations, right? Your, your standards for how certain do you want to be that this policy is really going to prevent every last infection? You're talking about the isolation time, right? The confidence that you need and the ability to set that policy is just naturally a little bit lower right now than it was, say, last summer, right? Because there are all of these other considerations where if you have uh, millions of people who are uh, out of work, uh, staying home for, for 10 days, it's going to cause all of these problems for the economy, for the healthcare system, 
So you can maybe at a little more at the margins cut these kinds of corners. It's a totally prudential judgment. Uh, it is you want it to be reasonably well based in the available science. The problem is that we we basically completely lack a language for thinking forthrightly and for speaking forthrightly about the nature of this decision making publicly. Um, we are unable to really talk about how much of this is based on what evidence we do have about how long infection lasts, how long of this is based on considerations about uh, the shock to the labor force and to the hospital workforce that's happening right now. There are all of these different kinds of considerations. Why can't we just have a leadership that, that just tells us candidly, this is the reasoning we're thinking about, right? We think that if we lower the isolation time from 10 days to five days, Maybe a few people who are infectious will still kind of slip through the gaps, but probably not a lot. And we think that that's a risk worth taking in order to achieve this other good. We know that's how they're thinking anyway, right? We know that that's actually the basis of the decision making. But by declining to offer this decision making, it's it's meant, I think, to tamp down mistrust among an unruly public. Of course, it actually just increases mistrust because people sense that they're not being treated like adults uh, the leadership are not being candid with them. And it also just makes things very murky, right? If it's if if you have a real concern about shortening the infection time from 10 days to five days, this follow the science language is very, very passive before the science. It, it's just something that we receive. It doesn't allow us to make demands, right? Maybe it's actually really, really important for us to understand what's happening between that five and 10 day duration window. And it should therefore be a political priority that we together are pressuring science, give us a clear answer for this, give us better evidence on this. So this passive relationship that we have in the way we think about scientific evidence is really hampering us in both directions. Yeah, it, it, and that circles back a little bit to the point that you were making earlier about, about masking, like why weren't more studies done? Why didn't we say this is a pressing issue that we need to figure out because we need to supply masks to people? So let's look at the data or let's do a study on it. Um, and there, as you said, there really hasn't been um, uh, a real, I mean, aside from that one, I think it was in India. Is that right? That, that randomized controlled trial for right. was done. Um, you know, there just haven't been many at all, but for therapeutics, you know, we have so many. Yeah. I, I want to maybe bring this back in time a little bit to Ebola because during that time, which was 2014 to 2015, I think we often forget, or at least it goes and mentioned that we dealt with the threat of, of another pandemic. And Ebola, the Ebola virus was ravaging uh, West Africa. And you had written multiple essays at the time in the New Atlantis, kind of criticizing the World Health Organization and the uh, CDC response to the virus. Um, one passage in particular from your essay, The Ebola Gamble, uh, sticks out to me. And I think we'll strike a familiar chord to anyone who has been following coronavirus news. Uh, you wrote, medical and public health professionals have become entrenched in convention, well beyond the point of beneficial conservatism. In many cases, they have not only failed to challenge outmoded views and practices, but have mobilized to shame and marginalize critics who dare to question their ways. We must understand and fix these problems for the next outbreak maybe of a disease more contagious than Ebola, and even worse understood. I'll just let that sink in for Yikes. just a moment. <laughs> um, so this quote, is- this, Quote Jeff Goldblum, boy, do I hate being right all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so some leading questions for you. Um, sure. Do you see any similarities between our public health response to the Ebola virus seven years ago and our response to COVID today? And did we actually learn or act on any lessons? Or has it just been this kind of track repeat uh, from then, just on a much larger scale? I'm going to pause for a moment to try to think of something positive to say, because I, I hate being entirely dour about this. And um, let, me, let me just preface my answer by saying... Um, I think coronavirus is the worst health catastrophe we've faced in a century, right? We've heard this said a bunch. It's true, and I think it's true even in ways we haven't really fully grappled with. We've become so used to it. Um, I think the the level of the damage 
uh, both in terms of uh, lives claimed, I think is probably significantly larger than the, the tallies that we're seeing every day. Um, the damage of long-term infection and all of the uncertainty that's being caused by this, the damage to culture and to political life, um, it's really remarkable. And so I, I strongly believe that this is a collective national problem that we, even in the level of, you know, of, of hysteria and fear that we've been living under, hasn't really lived up to uh, making sense of what a, a profound national problem this has been. That's that's the preface, right? Um, we have needed a, vo- a vigorous, strong, robust national response. This can't. This isn't just something that can be left to um, people to kind of figure out on their own individually. All that said, I think all the problems I pointed to have gotten worse during COVID. I, there's very little that has improved. Um, if you think about the question I raised earlier of how is it that we went from a, a health establishment broadly construed to mean uh, also elected leaders and journalists and so forth who are influencing the way we think about and make decisions about the pandemic. How is it that we went from them being l- largely dismissive of and downplaying this issue and treating it as symbolic in January and February of 2020 to then being in um, nonstop fear and doom and gloom mode uh, for the following two years? You can think of that as a flip, um, but the continuity is... Uh, it is an orientation towards science as something that is about minding other people's minds and emotions and how people are thinking and reasoning, right? There was this deep unease in the first couple of months of the pandemic when it was raging in China and before it had hit here. There was a deep unease with taking it seriously because it seemed to be associated with uh, anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia and all these other things that I think are silly, but this is the way it was being thought about. And then now there's a, a deep unease with the prospect of returning to normal life and with figuring out how to balance this um, and with simply with letting people make their own decisions um, and enabling and empowering people. There's a specific example of this that's been uh, burning a hole in my brain. A couple of days before Christmas, Vanity Fair published this article about how the Biden administration had been presented with a plan to scale up mass rapid testing. They were presented with this plan in October, which I should note is a month after they had actually already told the public that they were going to scale up mass rapid testing. And the administration basically poo-pooed it for several reasons. Um, The biggest one was that they thought that if people had better access to testing, it would sap their motivation to get vaccinated. There are also other parts of the public health establishment that I think were influencing the Biden administration that basically thought, you know, if you're getting tested, it should be in a healthcare context, right? Your doctor should be the one testing you so that they can then lead you in your care. You shouldn't be getting tested at home. Uh, There were also concerns that rapid testing would overwhelm the hospital system because lots of people would be getting their positive tests and then would frivolously go in for hospitalization. Um, This story links to a pattern of behavior in the public health establishment. Uh, Early on during the pandemic, the CDC was, to my mind, the CDC and the FDA have been, to, to some extent, have been obstacles uh, to dealing with the pandemic effectively mm, rather yeah. more than they have been helping, right? Early on, um, the CDC would not permit private labs to develop and use their own COVID tests. They said, you have to use our test, which wound up failing, which basically hindered the whole testing effort in the United States by at least a month or two at an incredibly crucial time. There's similar stories about the FDA uh, basically blocking um, or slow rolling applications for mass rapid testing. It, it is just this sort of collective, it's a, it's a kind of bureaucratic and turf protecting mindset, right? I, I know a lot of um, our friends on the right think that what's happening is we have a public health establishment that is just hungry for biological control, right? It's a new technocracy that wants to control people's bodies and is just terribly afraid of disease. That element is certainly there. There are those people who are thinking that way in the bureaucracy you see that kind of attitude in um, universities, it's there. But I think there's a much bigger element that is is interested in a kind of control without any particular end. They don't really have something they're trying to achieve. They're just deeply uncomfortable with anybody outside of the scientific community and the public health community making decisions at the same time as they seem 
crippled by uh, aggressive and proactive decision making them themselves of the kind that, that we need. And it's those dual problems that we have been dealing with. And, and that latter one, is that just a natural kind of human inclination to protect what you feel is your livelihood? Like you, you, you protect your purpose in a way. Um, you know, it's true of like, oh, well, let's take, for example, medical subspecialties. You know, the gastroenterologist decides this, not the neurologist. The neurologist decides this, not the urologist. It doesn't mean that there's not coordination, I think, but um, that everyone sort of has their piece of the pie. And so when you feel like your piece of the pie is being kind of siphoned off, you get into defense mode. Yeah, I think to some extent that's right. And there are elements of science in particular that exacerbate that natural human tendency towards turf protection. Um, in, in particular, this idea we have of science as this sort of oracular pursuit. If you have the appointed oracles who are speaking to the gods or uh, speaking to nature or whatever, um, it's it's just going to increase that inherent tendency. This is why I talk about, this is why I counsel two things. One is we should not expect uh, experts in the public health establishment to behave like angels. This kind of turf protective behavior, I think, is something that we should anticipate is just naturally going to come along with the territory of having scientific expertise. Um, at the same time, there's a couple of things that we should counsel. One is there are these other ways of thinking about science that are um, much more minded towards skepticism and independence and skeptical questioning. Uh, obviously, Galileo himself provides a model of that. I prefer to think about the model of people like Richard Feynman. Um, I can elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, but the, the thing I think that is most important is for everybody outside of the public health community to get out of this mode of deference, right? Um, I, I use the model of thinking about, um, think about the way that you, that all of us rely on expert judgment in ordinary everyday context when we take our car to a car mechanic or when we uh, maybe less commonly uh, hire an architect to build a home, right? There's something that we know that this expert has, a capability, a capacity for know-how that they have, and that's the reason that we're relying on them. There's a power that they have. That power also makes them somewhat dangerous to us because it means that they can do things that we don't fully understand. It means that they have their own view of how things, how things should be, and we need to be prepared to check that and to engage with that and to have a kind of back and forth with that. I think that the answers that we need to be looking for are understanding and expecting that that kind of arrogance and insularity are to some extent part of the territory of scientific power. And we need to be thinking about structures and modes of public reasoning that harness that power better and also check that power better. Hmm. Can, you, can you elaborate on um, folks like Richard Feynman and, and what you think is sort of the role model for, for this? Yeah. So Richard Feynman was this uh, kind of rogue dashing physicist. He was, if I remember right, he was involved in the Manhattan Project. He made a lot of contributions to theoretical physics. He uh, wrote a bunch of essays about his life as this kind of scientific flaneur, which I was assigned by one of my science professors in college and really loved. Um, he was for some time probably best known to the public for having a prominent role on the Challenger Commission, which was the government appointed commission that studied um, the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger. And he was really a model of the kind of reasoning we could have used more during COVID in his role in the commission. You basically had a bunch of <laughs> feckless turf protecting bureaucrats, um, both within NASA and in the various contractors um, who were involved in building the shuttle booster, which exploded. And they were engaged in the same kind of turf protective mode that I've been talking about here, right? Where, well, there's not enough evidence for this. And we have these charts that say this, and we have these charts that say that, just kind of hemming and hawing. He went in front of the commission and he had cut off a little piece of the rubber that was used in the O-ring on the space shuttle booster. He dropped it in a glass of ice water. And then in front of the commission, he dropped it on the table and it broke. And he said, doesn't this seem like a problem? And he basically just came up with this quick, simple demonstration for what should have been obvious to all of the engineers involved uh, in this event and was obvious to some of them, which was 
the the shuttle booster was being launched outside of its normal parameters because it was freezing on the morning of this launch and the the rubber on the o-ring wasn't designed to to take that so here was somebody who was kind of cutting through the proceduralism and the red tape um, of the scientific process and was just using uh, clear intuitive scientific reasoning to jump to a, a clear conclusion that was merited um, and that that is the kind of reasoning we could have used more is that that practical quick decision making making that uh, mode of NASA in its finest days, the problem solving mode. Um, I also think it's unreasonable to call for a grand revolution that entirely reorders the scientific establishment along that mode of thinking, because uh, that kind of thinking also has its own excesses. I think it takes rare, uh, great minds like Feynman's, and we can't expect to have the entire establishment function in that way. But we could use more of that spirit. Is there anyone today you feel embodies that spirit or a couple of people who have embodied that spirit during COVID, even if they haven't been uh, successful? Absolutely. Uh, there are lots and lots of positive examples during COVID. Um, the most obvious example is Operation Warp Speed. Um, oddly, I think we still as a public don't have a clear sense of who the major characters are in that. We know some of the scientists who came up with the mRNA vaccine idea um, and who, you know, pushed it in its earliest days. But the spirit of public-private partnership um, of Operation Warp Speed and the, the rapidness with which that was scaled up, it is really remarkable. It's praiseworthy. We could have used a great deal more of that. We should have had that same kind of program with rapid testing, with ventilation, with mass manufacturing N95 masks, with rapidly scaling up the production and research of pharmaceuticals, all of this kind of stuff. We needed that same spirit elsewhere. Um, but we've also had that same spirit in, there have been some public commentators, uh, Zainab Tufechpi, who writes for, often for the New York Times and the Atlantic, has really embodied the spirit. Scott Gottlieb, who is head of the FDA, has been very, very practical-minded about the advice that he gives people. He's, he strikes a great balance of grounding things in science while trying to get to practical advice and offer tangible solutions. Um, another good example is the COVID tracking project. This has been, you see the highs and the lows in COVID, right? One of the, um, the clearest problems we've had is just a lack of good data uh, about all of the metrics we need, hospitalization, deaths. Only just recently have we been starting to get good data on um, how many people who are being admitted to the hospital are being admitted because of COVID symptoms versus uh, uh, finding out that they have COVID during the course of their hospitalization. Um, that's something that we should have known about earlier. Um, and the, the CDC, again, has been just mind-numbingly abysmal in its performance on this. And so you had private actors who stepped in. A couple of writers at The Atlantic Magazine created the COVID tracking, COVID tracking project early on uh, to try to solve this problem. And it continues to be, uh, the, the project was discontinued several months ago, um, but that project embodied that spirit of nimble decision-making uh, towards the collection of information itself, cutting through red tape to get information that we need very quickly. That spirit was there in the COVID tracking project. This sort of thing has been much, much easier to find in people who are not formally part of the scientific establishment than it has been in people who actually work for the major uh, establishments for the CDC and the FDA. And that's a big problem. Let's talk about the CDC because You've written about it. You wrote about it during Ebola, and you've written about it during COVID. Um, and the CDC has played a really central role um, during the pandemic uh, of late. It was the organization that in September of 2020 banned residential evictions across the country. It decided who could be tested for COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic when tests were scarce. Uh, and I will say that we as physicians use it for guidance um, in the way that like the American Heart Association or the American Academy of Neurology, these professional medical organizations will provide guidelines and sum up literature for physicians who don't necessarily have time to comb through every study and come to their own conclusion about every single clinical question. So too, with the CDC, we've used it for guidance on pandemic policy. Uh, and even now, some epidemiology research I'm involved with uses the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, and those surveys are conducted by the CDC. So it, it seems then that the CDC's purview is massive. 
Um, what do you see as the purpose of the of the CDC? How has it sort of maybe misapplied that purpose, or or maybe it, it it's fulfilled its pur- purpose and its purpose is just kind of um, inappropriate um, during during COVID nineteen? That's a good question. Uh, I wish I knew the answer. I don't really know what the point of the CDC is. I know what I would like it to be and what a lot of people would like it to be. I don't really have a sense of what main goal it's trying to accomplish. I don't think it has a clear goal of what it's trying to accomplish. I think uh, a lot of people in the country have conflicting ideas uh, of what it's trying to accomplish. I wrote a piece on this for the New Atlantis a couple of uh, a couple of months ago called What is the CDC? Just sort of walking through all of the different ideas that we are tacitly deploying when we have fights about the CDC and how conflicting they are. I should say that this is this is an inherently difficult problem. There's different models that you should want. There's different functions that you should want um, in a public health organization that is targeted at combating infectious disease that are that don't all sit easily together, right? One is just serving as a as an information clearinghouse, right? Like basically an organization whose job is to do research meta reviews and just say, here's a summation of what we know. That function is actually a little bit in conflict with the more problem-solving orientation that I suggested before, because when you're solving problems, you don't have the luxury of waiting around for the best available evidence, and you have to do some kind of guesswork. Uh, right? Here's a tangible example. I had somebody in my household recently who was um, sick with COVID, and even though I've now been generally of the mindset of everybody's going to get it and it's time to just get that over with, once I was actually faced with it, I thought, mm, I don't know if I really want to get it right now because uh, I don't want to be sick and out of work for a week. So I was trying to figure out what to do about this. And um, it's actually, it's just very hard to find tangible information. I'm sure what they would tell you is, uh, you know, mask up, isolate, whatever that means. It's not exactly clear what that means in terms of tangible guidance. I'm not going to wear a mask in my house for a week. I'm just sorry, but I'm not going to do that. Um, so I had to kind of improvise. Um, I, I followed... I remember having seen on an engineering blog about a year ago, somebody tape a high quality Merv, duct tape a high quality Merv filter to a box fan. And I, I wound up doing that. It cost about 50 bucks. It was easy to do. That's the kind of thing that I think that the CDC would recoil at anybody doing this because it is operating outside of the normal process. Uh, you know, you can't standardize something like that. But that's the kind of thinking that we have just desperately and direly needed during the pandemic, practical uh, guidance for people. Uh, But there's an additional part of this, which is the CDC naturally is going to represent the government and the presidential administration's own aims uh, during public health, which are going to be to a large extent aligned with individual aims and combating disease, but they're not always going to be exactly the same. Um, Vaccination is one of the most obvious examples of this, right? There's a lot of aims that vaccination is trying to achieve in terms of the social problem of COVID that go beyond the individual benefit uh, of preventing serious illness and, and death. Um, so it's an inherently difficult problem. And I think that the, the CDC has made it even more difficult than it needs to be by um, getting bogged down with mission creep, by the creep in the definition of public health. We hear them talk about climate change as a public health problem and racism as a public health problem and all of these other things. So it's trying to do all of these different things, and it seems to have lost focus on the core mission, which is stopping infectious disease. It doesn't really seem to have a NASA during the Apollo era orientation towards figuring out how you stop a pandemic, and that is the core thing that we've needed it to do, and we still need it to do, however we define that. And and the the reasoning for that it, does it have something to do with kind of what we had talked about earlier about um, uh, I guess kind of becoming rigid in this I well I don't know having their own kind of piece of the pie protecting it inflexibility about that yeah I still don't have a, a an entirely settled answer to why this is. Um, I think a big part of it has to be the natural problem that confronts any bureaucracy, uh, right? If you're a Warby Parker glasses wearing city dweller as I am, you've probably seen the HBO show The Wire. Um, you've seen the the depiction of the police department 
juking the stats, right? And all of these bureaucracies whose purpose becomes simply to preserve and continue the bureaucracy. And that actually saps their motivation to solve the problem they're there to solve because then the bureaucracy wouldn't exist anymore. I don't read anything exactly that cynical into the um, the motivations of the CDC. I, I think that they simply have gotten preoccupied with process for the sake of process. Um, and they have forgotten what the processes are supposed to serve, which is making decisions and achieving real things in the world. And we need a, a clear goal and purpose oriented structure for our public health bureaucracy that they really don't have in the way that they need to. I want to get to vaccines um, that you you brought up. Uh, but first, one other thing I want to cover, which is um, when we've discussed recently, I don't know if historically this has always been true, but when we've discussed recently uh, about you know infectious diseases, pandemic, peripandemic, policy, our, our public health officials seem obsessed, at least at the outset, with dampening our fears. Um, right. It can be summed up sort of in this way. Fear is the thing that endangers us more than the disease itself. This happened in March of 2020 um, with Trump, the editor-in-chief of foreign affairs. I mean, you can name a whole bunch of people sort of of the establishment um, who made, made this proclamation. And then it happened during Ebola too, as you pointed out in, in your essays on Ebola. Uh, so Michael Kinzer, a CDC epidemiologist, said that Ebola is not transmitted by the air. Fear and ignorance are transmitted by the air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what is it about our scientific policy or leadership or even the, the political inclinations of people that make us prone to underestimating a threat or trying to play down the threat of disease that's so self-evidently dangerous, even you know, after the first couple of months? I wish I had a good answer for that because it seems so obviously and catastrophically misguided that I, I really struggle to understand the people who operate from this mindset. The only way that I can think of it is I've described it as a kind of cognitive hygiene, right? It is this um, obsession with the way other people are thinking and reasoning and behaving. Um, you know, there were bunches. There were a bunch of examples of this during Ebola. You had a an, a, several, a series of news cycles about how the public was absolutely just freaking out about Ebola, and when you dug into it, there was really very, very little to this. There was one story of a you know somebody who was seen at an airport wearing a hazmat suit, like one person in the entire country. Um, I, I'm struggling to think of the other examples. I, I really searched for these. Uh, when I wrote my Ebola article, and they were just, they were so scattered. Um, I don't know if it's a kind of natural tendency or what, but the the leadership of this country, uh, the political leadership, the public health leadership, and journalists especially, there is this cognitive minding that's going on where um, there there's this kind of uh, pathological obsessiveness about how other people are thinking and feeling to the point that it seems to dictate and guide and direct decision-making. Um, this is not distinctive to, to COVID. It happened during Ebola. It happened during SARS. To some extent, it happened during AIDS. Uh, you know, I suspect the longer you go back in pandemic history, you, this is probably a kind of psychological type or mode that is just part of human nature and part of the, the nature of leadership that you can find. Um, but I, I, I think it's quite baseless. Um, you know, if we were in 2019, suppose we were just shooting the breeze about imagine there's a global pandemic and um, 20 million people are going to die and it's going to shutter the world's economy for two years. What are the two things that you would imagine might happen? One is a kind of massive wartime footing from the government, like a, a return to a sort of World War II mode where the government just totally takes over um, uh takes over the handling of this crisis and you're dealing with the kinds of problems that you had when you had a, a Manhattan project, things like that, right? The kinds of, of problems of a government alliance of science where it's, it's taking control of this. And the other is that you're going to have people panicking in the streets and, um, you know, people eating each other's faces off like in a zombie movie, right? The surprising thing is neither of those things have happened during COVID. You have had 
all of the kind of grueling downsides of this sort of dystopian, not not all of, but a lot of the grueling downsides of this kind of dystopian scenario where life has been shut down, people have behaved pretty well. They've griped on Twitter and, and grumbled about it, but at no point during this has there been anything resembling uh, mass panic, I think, in the way that people are worried about. Um, and But you also haven't had the government doing its its part in this equation to actually directly combat the underlying problem. It has, it has sort of seamlessly transitioned from a mode where it was tut-tutting and chastising people for being afraid of the pandemic to tut-tutting and chastising people for not being afraid of the pandemic and for not taking the proper measures. And that, that's like the only lever that we know how to pull anymore is just are people's emotions calibrated in the right way? Are people's virtues in the right place? Are individuals, are each of us individually doing our part? That's that's become the whole picture of what pandemic policy is. We haven't even really had these kinds of arguments about should there be a you know a uh, Apollo program for rapid testing or ventilation or or whatever else. It's just it's all this kind of referendum on individual behavior and virtue. And it's come at the expense, I think, of figuring out how we get out of this. I mean, one of the most prescient pieces that you wrote during the pandemic was, "What's the plan?" Um, and this you wrote in March of 2020, um, saying the problem in the near term is not whether the plan for victory is too costly. It is whether we have a plan at all. The chief priority of our leadership must be to offer us this vision before the end of the shutdown period they have defined a week from now arrives. And this has become a long-term problem as our willpower um, becomes more and more anemic with each variant. It's still unclear to me, and I imagine many of our listeners, what our plan for victory entails. Um, we've been so reluctant to think about or discuss a hard endgame for the pandemic, and I'm not sure why. Are we just focusing on um, this fear mongering um, at the expense of a grand strategy, or I, I'm not sure. How do you see that um, that playing out? Yeah, uh, well, Jeff Goldblum again, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I mean, I should preface again, I don't envy the position of anybody in leadership right now. This is in some ways a harder problem than something like fighting a war because uh, the virus is never going to sign an armistice or ceasefire agreement. Um, And the options for actually stopping it, for actual eradication, that path has been closed for at least two years now. It would have required a very different and more nimble political leadership to make that happen. By the time anybody was paying attention to it, even by the time I was paying attention to it, that option was basically gone. Um, And the vaccines have turned out to be not as effective as we might hope in uh, achieving that after the fact and actual eradication. So there's going to have to be some sort of balance. What that is, um, I don't have an entirely clear idea of that. I think we're going to be pretty close to Achieving it in the next few weeks, as close as we might hope, uh, once the Omicron surge subsides, which I probably will in the next few weeks, um, that makes the role of leadership even more important in this context, even than it was in a wartime footing, because it requires a tremendous amount of political buy-in on accepting whatever uh, the eventual outcome and the eventual model is going to be. Um, I think it has got to be... I, I think... It is an incumbent on our leadership to give us a vision not of a new normal, but of normal, right? Previous normal with a with a couple of asterisks, but expecting that the kind of restrictions that we've been laboring under um, are just going to become the new way of life. I, I think people will not accept it. I think there are even already signs that um, the members of the intellectual classes, the elite classes who have been most invested in it are starting to check out from that. And so the two things that you want from leadership are to offer a clear vision of what that new thing is going to look like, that new paradigm, um, old, new, however you want to put it, and tell us what they are going to do, what the force of the government is going to achieve that we are not capable of achieving on our own that is going to permit that to happen. Um, There are tentative little baby steps in both in positive directions on both of those things. But I, I remain pretty pessimistic uh, that that we are going to get that from the Biden administration. I want to talk to you lastly about vaccines, uh, because we I become obsessed with vaccines 
in a rather unhealthy way. I don't mean to say that vaccines are bad or they haven't been life-saving in myriad circumstances, that we shouldn't be thankful for, for their miraculous existence. I mean that every other conversation, every other news story, every other Twitter post, it's about vaccines, efficacy or inefficacy, ignorance and inhumanity of the unvaccinated, the gullibility of the vaccinated, mandates, the threat of fascism or analogies to the Holocaust, the percentage of breakthrough infections, um, et cetera, et cetera. This is somewhat understandable since you know COVID-19 is still rampant. And many of us feel and felt that normalcy uh, or semi-normalcy at least depends on some measure of widespread vaccination use. But the messaging feels off in some way on both sides, kind of like panicky and ham-handed. And it hasn't really been as effective, I think, as it was intended. Um, in the midst of this, you wrote a recent article in National Review that I thought was really spot on uh, about vaccine mandates. Um, you said, common good talk may seem even more perilously capacious than protect others and slow the spread. But really, it is a more encompassing view of all the social layers and their attendant goods that have been imperiled. It offers a more porous sense of the border between individual and group, showing a more complex network of intimacies and dependencies that we are already caught up in and that cannot be translated fully into the language of liberty and black or white obligation. That we have been doggedly trying to do so might help explain why we have been at each other's throats these past two years. Can you explain this perspective and what we've been missing and ignoring it in the context of vaccines? So what I was trying to do with that piece was to to bring together two insights or ideas. Uh, one is that I I know this is a this is a point that has not received the warmest reception from my <laughs> my friends on the right. I actually think that the case that we have been hearing for vaccination for the last year is not strong enough. Um, and the reason is that we have been putting it in these kind of indiv individualistic terms. The, the way that I made this case in the piece is we're having this sort of fight about the balance between um, individual rights and obligations and group rights and obligations um, in a way that's actually dialed up too high and unreasonably high, right? And when you dig into the reasoning and the fights over the reasoning for um the sort of social case for vaccines and then for various vaccine required requirements and mandates, the reasoning starts to break down pretty quickly just under the fact that the vaccines are less than 100% effective at stopping serious hospital, serious illness and death, and a lot less than 100% effective at stopping transmission, maybe 40 or 50% effective. The reasoning breaks down fairly quickly because if, if the purpose is, for example, to prevent you from uh, passing on COVID to somebody else, if it's only 40 or 50% effective at doing that, how much can you really rationalize a mandate behind that? And you just get into these, it starts to feel like a, a kind of freshman philosophy seminar over rights and libertarianism. And the whole thing just feels starts to feel kind of exhausting. I, the case I really wish we would hear made more, and President Biden has done this a little bit, but it, it's not been the majority of what he's been doing. I just want to want them to make the case, like, look at Look at Portugal, look at the countries. There aren't a lot of them, but the countries with really, really high vaccine rates, like 80 or 90%, they're just in a much better place overall, right? The benefit is obvious when you look at the country as a whole, more clearly so than when you look at each individual. Um, and COVID is a problem that is about much more than, we've basically turned it into a problem about whether people are getting infected against their will. Right. And that is a big part of the problem. But just look at everything. Look at the, the shocks to the supply chain, the strain on the hospitalization system, all of this stuff. This is all downstream from a single big thing, which is it's all the downstream effects of the pandemic. Yes, a lot of it is the effects of the way that we are responding and over responding and being too afraid of the pandemic. Um, but you you want to do two things. You want to actually really tamp down the underlying problem as much as possible. And then you want to encourage people to live with and move on with their lives and accept the, the problem that does remain. I think that's a, it's a hard ask when you have closing in on 2000 people a day dying as we are having right now. Right. So I wanted to make that common good kind of case, the case for the sort of spirit of vaccination that we had um, during polio and the spirit, of, the spirit of national unity that we had around some of the sacrifices that were made 
uh, during World War II. Um, but the other side of that is to to think about uh, the other side of this common good case is to think about the way that we engage with people who are skeptical of vaccines, either in general or skeptical of the COVID vaccines. There are things that are novel about the COVID vaccines relative to the vaccines we had before. And I think that the punitive and shaming um, attitude towards vaccine skeptics, um, although I understand it and I, I've, I'll confess I've even felt it myself at some points um, because it is such a powerful measure and I, I wish more people would do it. I think it has just been obviously extremely counterproductive. Um, and the, the reason for that is that it is orienting, it, it is alienating the people that it's targeting from sharing in the commonality of this good that vaccination is supposed to achieve. Um, and I, I talked a bit about the polio campaign in the 50s and how much it was, you know, it, it was a 20-year effort, started with the March of Dimes that was funding the search for a cure and culminated in the vaccine. It was really, really targeting participation and people were bought in on it because they, in a way, felt themselves to be part of this effort. That's not something that you can easily replicate in the kind of timescale that we're looking at or even under the political conditions we have now. But I think that there's much more that we could do to actually accommodate and treat with respect the concerns of vaccine skeptics. I think that they also, um, perhaps not surprisingly, I think they are making some points that are true and are worth accommodating and that vaccine enthusiasts are going to miss because they they don't want to concede points to the skeptics. I think the case for um, having carve outs for people who are naturally immune is fairly strong. I think the push to get children vaccinated is very weak and troubling uh, because children are just at very, very, very small risk um, from COVID. They're not able to consent to vaccination in the same way. And so the the push to vaccinate them is really about using them as a, as a vehicle for social benefit. There's precedent for that. That's kind of what, what prior childhood vaccination mandates are in part trying to achieve. But you can understand why people have reluctance about that. Um, so I think that the, the entire attitude that we have around vaccine advocacy uh, could and should change in fruitful ways to be uh, to be less <laughs> less punitive and to be seeking more not just communications, not just persuasion, but actual accommodation. Nor Norman Deutsch wrote a wonderful series of essays in Tablet um, on this on, on vaccine hesitation. COVID vaccine hesitation. I think there was a series of four essays that were really excellent. And, and he said, you know, there are reasons, he, as someone who was vaccinated, he said there are reasons to ask for some kind of explanation or some level uh, to, to to express some level of hesitancy about about these vaccines. Um, but we, our language and our use of of kind of shaming around this, as you said, has been counterproductive and um, and I think has honestly, I don't know this hypothesis, but contributed to pol politi political polarization. I mean, we've um, really, we've basically made it as if the right wing is is skeptical of vaccines and they're MAGA people and the left wing is are the enlightened scientists. And that again, circles back to the idea of like science versus anti-science that we talked about at the beginning. Um, whereas the the vaccine skepticism movement is far more complicated and draws from multiple political arenas, um, both left and right wing. Um, at least that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we need to wrap up the, the podcast here in a moment. I, I could talk about this at some length. Um, I, I very strongly uh, urge and recommend um, that essay by Norman Doidge and Tablet uh, to anybody who has struggled to make sense of and understand uh, vaccine skepticism. Um, Yes, there's a, there's a lot that can be said about it. Uh, it's it's difficult because we live in this moment where the reasons that people offer, we're dealing with these very deep political divides, and it seems that reason is failing us here. Right when we try to understand the specific reasons people offer for holding beliefs that we profoundly disagree with, they never seem adequate to explaining that difference. Right. Even when you even when you hear something that makes a little bit of sense to you and you begin to think, OK, I, th I think I see where you're coming from. I'm not persuaded, but I think I see where you're coming from. There's still that kind of lingering gap of like, even though 
there's something to this. I don't get why you are so invested in this. I don't get what the motivation is that has kind of led you to this consideration. Um, I don't have grand ideas on what to do with that problem other than to just start by treating the reasons as rational and as legitimate and substantive and not pretextual and, and see how far that gets us. I don't think it's going to get us all the way to holding hands in Kumbaya, but I think we have, we're not making that effort to do that. And um, the vaccine debate is a pretty clear example of where there's a lot more that we could do tangibly to take those kinds of steps, to accommodate the concerns, um, to recognize the, the mistrust of um, the FDA and uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, that's something that, it, that seems fairly reasonable to me. It doesn't uh, amount to um, a case for rejecting the vaccines entirely, but it's a pretty reasonable concern, um, the, the kind of conflict of interest concerns that people have raised. And it's something we ought to be addressing anyway, even if we don't think that it, it closes the distance to uh, the final conclusion. Absolutely. Uh, on that note, Ari, thanks very much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.